Hey everyone, welcome back to the Not Only Farmers podcast. This week is episode number six. While making these podcasts and putting together lists of possible future guests, I've realized how many amazing people we have involved in agriculture right here where I live in Southern Oregon. Today, my conversation is with two of those amazing Southern Oregon folks, Kirsten and Christopher Shockey. This was my first in-person podcast, which I'm hoping to do more of in the future. Kirsten and Christopher are homesteaders, fermentation specialists, as well as world-renowned authors of books on pretty much everything fermentation. The Shockeys also happen to live just a few miles from me here in my valley. I've known the Shockeys for over 20 years, living along the same watershed for about 18 of those. It's really cool watching friends shift and pivot their way through the diverse challenges of making a living off the land, and the Shockeys are no strangers to this. Today we talk about their process of realizing that they needed to write their first book, figuring out how to get that book published, and then all of the continuing challenges and insights of maintaining momentum as world-traveling authors. We also talk details on cool trends happening in the world of fermentation, hear some great world-traveling stories, get the details of Kirsten's collectively operated, woman-owned online fermentation school, and also just touch base with each other since we actually haven't seen much of one another over the past 10 years or so. It was great catching up with the Shockies, and I hope you enjoy catching up with them too. Now here's my conversation with Kirsten and Christopher. So I think the cool, the cool place to start was I was going through like all of your guys' stuff the last couple of days. We like li- literally live miles from each other and I haven't seen much of you guys over the last decade. Yeah. So I was like, what have these guys been up to? I knew you guys had been busy, but I was looking and I was looking at the dates and realized that you guys are approaching 10 years since the first book. Yeah. Yeah. So that would mean that you guys were, when did you start writing that book? Would that take a couple years? I think it's 2012, right? Yeah, I think um, even maybe a little bit before that when we were in business, hmm. we, we started writing it um, just really slowly and without, you know, like any specific focus on writing the book. Yeah. So I would even say maybe even 2011. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it it took us a while. We had sort of a false start. We thought we, were, we had a publisher and then they were like, Mm, never mind. And then we're like, fine, we're going to self-publish this. And so we wrote the whole book and Christopher <laughs> put it all into iBooks. And, you know, we thought we made it really pretty with our pictures. And, and uh, <laughs> right before we were ready to hit publish, um, Gianacles, who you know, mm-hmm. um, she she's like, why don't you try one more publisher? <laughs> oh, wow. And so we sent it in and they're like, yeah, we want it, but we're going to do new pictures. And then it was still another 18 or 12, 18 months. So I would have to say maybe even 2000, you know, definitely 2011. I don't think we had meals in there yet. Did we, or did we? Mm, we did. Okay. Yeah. That was what the other publisher wanted. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it was a long process. And at first we were, 
a little bit hurt that they didn't want our pictures. And then when we saw that professional <laughs> photos, we're like, oh, so thank bad. God they didn't so want bad. our pictures. <laughs> so bad. That's so funny. It would have been a very different um, story yeah. because this book has now sold probably close to three or 400,000 copies if you count all the languages and oh, wow. e-books. First. And, you know, if you clump it all into all the forms. I think I saw there was a video... Christopher talking about it being in German now. And he said, so now Germans can make sauerkraut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we just, I found out online on mm-hmm. a Instagram post of all things uh-huh. from a bookstore in Belarus that, um, it's now in Russian and oh, that wow. just happened. And you, do you guys know about that kind of stuff or, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or do they just do it? Is that they the just, publisher? They just do it? it. And then we get a tiny advance and sometimes we notice it in our tiny royalty check and sometimes we don't. So this one right. we obviously didn't see. But. And they don't always pan out cause it's a big book to translate. Right. And so like there, at one point they sold it to a Chinese publisher. We thought this is it, you know, there are a lot of people in China. Just, yeah. yeah. Just 1%. Yeah. We're, we're done. <laughs> And then they have, they'll have like 18 months to get the book out or not. And those guys were, or not. So Hmm. it's still available, you know? Uh, And so that's how it happens. So you you have no control. Now, other times if you're an author, you can keep the rights and, but then you have to figure out how you're going to reach out to all those foreign publishers, you know, negotiate that contract and all that. So, so it's the, it's the good and the bad of, Mm -hmm. of doing the book, but seems like the book was really kind of like the shift in everything that you guys were doing, right? I mean, if you, it, it just seems like that's what kind of propelled you guys into the current phase of where you are right now. Is that accurate? Do you think? Oh, or? for sure. Yeah, for sure. And people often, I mean, you know, now I get a lot of people that say, Hey, I'd love to do what you're doing. I want to be in the food industry. I want to do something. And how did you, you know, what was your path. And that's like, Oh my God, it was so organic. You know, I mean, this wasn't ever what we thought the path would be. It was more like, Oh, you know, we, we want to support the local farms and ferment some vegetables and make a little local company. And then we were like, wow, people really want to understand these foods. And I think it was just so much of it was timing Mm -hmm. and yeah. And it, I think when we, we did the first book, we'd ever considered there would be a second book, let alone a third, fourth, and fifth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and two, we built the survey kitchen not knowing, we didn't do enough homework to know how big we needed to make it. Mm-hmm. So the fermentation cave, when we were really going and also writing the book, you know, it was full. And then we couldn't really break out to say, yeah, we'll take that contract with Whole Foods in Portland. Well, and we, we really didn't want to. Yeah, we, it was kind of really our, wanted to stay local. It was kind of our excuse because we got to the point where, you know, we're buying a Dodge pickup truck full of glass jar from the hardware store and bringing those back and trying to stay with we're going to buy only U.S. glass. You know, we're, we had all these rules for ourselves, you know, but then we also saw, as you know, this valley is pretty insulated. But we saw we had friends in Portland and Seattle and in the Bay Area who had fermentation lines and they were expanding, which by definition means they're coming towards you. And, you know, they scaled. So they had machines that filled bags and they had the special bags and all those things that we didn't have. And, you know, you get that, as you know, you get to yeah. a scale question. You say, How, what are we going to do here? Yep. 
and the book came along, we just decided we'd rather teach people than keep doing Well, it's it. heavy food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, honestly, it's heavy food. It's not um, easy to ship. It's not easy nope. to ship. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a challenge to take it to market, too, because it's mm-hmm. heavy food, and, and the coolers get heavy quickly, and you have to use smaller ones because, you know. Right. And... You know, I, I mean, I think it's a great food and, and local, small local farmers or local mm-hmm. food companies should be making this food locally. It shouldn't be shipped all over because not yeah. everybody can make it at home. Yep. But um, empowering people, whether it's in their home or whether it's on a farm, just was so much more juicy to me and, and a, you know, much better reason to wake up in the morning than mm-hmm. me being the one to go make the sauerkraut to, you know, I'll never forget once at market when it sort of hit me, you know, and, and so, you know, but the listeners don't know, um, we live in a very (laughs) hilly valley and we don't have anything flat on our farm. You know, it was great for goats and we, we did make goat cheese and, um, but when we decided to do a sauerkraut company, it was really buying vegetables from the farms in our neighborhood. Um, so we also, we're always buying our inputs. The profit margin wasn't huge for us, and it really struck home one day when somebody said, oh, you know, this, this, your, your sauerkraut is so good, it tastes like, you know, homemade. And I'm thinking, it is homemade. <laughs> and then that same day, you know, we're, we're, we're tired, we'd gotten up to go to market at whatever, four or five a.m., and you know, then we're taking this profit from this jar, you know, and actually to buy a bag of chips is probably a profit from three jars. And we're buying chips and dip in a plastic container to go eat on the way home because we're hungry. And it sort of occurred to me, wait a minute, I'm making all this nutrient dense homemade food in order to go buy chips for my family. (laughs) What am I doing here? Yeah. That was a wake up kind of, it was. Mm -hmm. And that's really when it was like, and we had so many people that were interested in how these foods worked. And, and so they were coming, you know, just locally and coming out to the kitchen and learning how, and, and it was really that, that was sort of that Genesis of, I mean, it was Christopher's idea. We should write a book on, how to do this because people want to know yeah. and it's easy. It's, it's ancestral knowledge. It's ancient. It's nothing that we hold a, a key to. Right. Do you, do you remember that moment when you were like, we should write a book or was it just one of those? <laughs> yeah, I do. And then, uh, <laughs> so, and she said, sure, go ahead. Cause she was writing, Kristen was writing a book, a different book. Uh-huh. No, no. So I thought, fine, I will. And, <laughs> <laughs> so this tells you like two authors in a box. How do we work? So I was all about the story. So I'd researched all the history of sauerkraut. I had the stories about scurvy. Um, I had no recipes because I didn't make the recipes. Like our job, my job was in the kitchen. So, you know, it Kirsten would point to four boxes of cabbage and I'd start chopping and then we'd put it in the big 80 quart bowl and then she'd come in and she'd kind of pixie dust this and this and this and taste it so yep then she'd go away and then I'd roll out all the jars and I'd stuff all the jars and do the labels and everything so I didn't make the recipes and so when you do a cookbook it's really handy if you have recipes (laughs) and so I had this book was all 
some stories and, you know, and uh, no recipes. So I came back with my tailbook between my legs and said, hey, um, could you write some recipes for the book? <laughs> I talked her into it. but And that's kind of been the process, except for the cider book. Um, you know, we all, we've, we have our talents, but Kirsten's definitely the recipe developer. And I think for people who are wanting to write a book, there's a lot of different jobs that either you do or somebody else does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but one of them needs to be, I can come up with a recipe that, you know, someone hasn't come up with before or a different take on it or something, you know, that's filling a need for somebody. Um, well, and it should work. And it should work, yeah, because the Internet's full of a lot of recipes that don't work. So, I mean, you, you just had to do a bunch of testing too, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like you just tried it and you're just magically great at it. No. In fact, I mean, if we're being completely honest here, I'm a very intuitive cook. And, mm-hmm. and he's he's not ex- exaggerating when he'd say, I'd come in and sprinkle and do this or that um, when we were doing it commercially because we didn't have to have a recipe. And so... And we were working so seasonally and so locally. And, and I guess back to the point before about not doing it ourselves anymore, part of the magic for me was, you know, you calling up or Mary calling up and saying, you know, we got too much of X, Y, or Z, yeah. you know, can you do something with it so it doesn't go to waste? It's like, sure. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. Today we're doing onions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so translating that into recipes with measurements and and weights and or whatever it was that was that was the more challenging part it's like so a lot of times my process is make it how I would make it which is not pay attention and then kind of go back on that testing phase and try to figure out so I've gotten much better at actually paying attention to what I'm doing that first time around right (laughs) and if it works then you know repeating or or adjusting it in ways that I think it needs to change. So diverting off of that topic a little bit, as far as you mentioned, you know, farmers coming to you guys with like, Hey, we've got extra cases of Napa cabbage or whatever carrots or, or whatnot. Have you seen in your guys travels any system of like, say a, a, a crowding house or whatever you want to call it, or ferment fermentation house that works successfully off of just whatever comes in? You know, because it doesn't really match up with our current distribution system. Because our current distribution system is like, this company sells this many cases of kraut per week, this many mm-hmm. cases of kimchi per week, and then we're going to hit these targets because that's what the customers want. Do you, have, have you ever seen anything like that, or have you guys ever? Um, well, two things come to mind. One is just when farmers are doing their own thing. You know, oh, in, right. in Oregon. The cottage food laws mm-hmm. allow for, and there are many states that have cottage food laws that allow for, you know, a certain percentage to be made without the full certified kitchen and all of that. Yep. And so I'm seeing that definitely in, in those kind of spaces. I, I do consulting with businesses and, um, I, I've talked to a few people that are trying, but so many people end up falling into the, I'm going to say trap. It may be not isn't the right word, but that's how I felt <laughs> Right. of people want a certain product. They want yep. their lemon dill kraut. They want their whatever. And once they love it, it's hard to say, actually, we're not working this way. So I think that's still a little bit reserved for the really micro 
micro hyper local folks, yeah. but there is a place in um, Berkeley, the Cultured Pickle Shop, and they have been in business now, I think, for 25 or more years, and their story is great. They've they've got um, their fermentation space, which is also now you know has a retail outlet. And they went from basically teeny tiny farmers markets to being there when crowd exploded and, you know, being in all the Whole Foods and being a wholesale distributor, they were able to really build their business. And it took them a number of years, but they knew they didn't want to stay there. And then now they've been able to finally close the last of those wholesale accounts and really concentrate on what they're doing. And what they're doing is working hyper-locally with what's on in the area at the time. Um, They do a lot of unique Asian-style ferments. There's a sake brewery down the road from them, and so they're using the sake lees to, you know, ferment seasonally these different vegetables. And then they're selling those products, but then they're also once a week they have it open and and they put out a rice bowl with like these incredible spreads of ferments that could be eight years old versus you know something that was a quick pickle made two days ago and so it's happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) in pockets yeah and i mean that it sounds like they're as much of a retail facility they'd also be an educational facility too so pairing those two it's kind of important and you really almost have to have a metropolitan area like the Bay for sure to, for that to, to for happen. Sure. And, and when you say educational, it's really true. I mean, I think that's how they've incorporated, you know, the knowledge and the education that they, um, would like to share is through those bowls. And so when people come in on Saturdays, I think there's two seatings, I could be wrong, but, um, they, they are presented with this beautiful dish and, in it, they're taken through the story of each of those vegetables. And and some of those vegetables might be a dust, you know, that was a powder that was a previous ferment that, you know, no longer was as fresh in that, you know, moist, wet way. <laughs> right, but, right. But it is still amazing flavor. There's still lots of nutrition in there. And so that's the other unique thing that they're, sh- they're showing people that, actually fermented vegetables or fermented foods are kind of a continuum, right? It's like you've got the fresh carrot pulled from the garden and then there's this continuum where it, you know, could end up being, you know, part of a kimchi dust years later that then it's finally being consumed. Yeah. (laughs) There's also examples of uh, fruit to yeast examples. So, you know, the things that were done in Ashland where people would bring in their fruit you know, in the yard and, and they'd bring it together and then Apple outlaw would make a cider from all that community cider. Oh yeah. They've doing that at the co-op. Yeah. Yeah. And Sean was doing that up in Eugene too. So it's like community brings in everything, something, and then it just, you make this mashup cider and then, you know, usually it's for, they do it for fundraising or different things like that. Um, we met a gentleman that was taking wine and making vinegar. So he's taking commercial wine that is off or they didn't sell it in time or they've got back surplus. 
and he's mixing all together and making red wine vinegar, making a good red wine vinegar, but he's using something that would probably, they were just dumping it. Mm-hmm. So it was a waste product basically that he's turned around and do that. So I think when you go to the fruit side and yeast, you have that same continuum Kirsten's talking about, but it's fruit to alcohol, alcohol to vinegar. And you can look and see where in that line do I have surplus, maybe I have surplus alcohol or I have surplus fruit and just decide, you know, is that next stage going to be the thing that we enjoy or are we going to take it to the next stage? So you can do that too. Yeah. My mind is reeling with all of the, I mean, it's really cool to, um, it's almost like the next continuum in community building, honestly, that we, that I don't think we even, we even knew was coming. Yeah. Kind of like the whole fermentation thing. We didn't even know it was coming. And all of a sudden we were like the three of us sitting here have always been aware of fermentations, but it just seems like the American culture has just a, come awake to it in the last mm-hmm. 10 years, you know, For sure. And, and many other countries are like right behind us and, and just as excited, <laughs> including the Germans, <laughs> including the Germans. Yeah. So do you think it's just lost knowledge? It just went out of style and now it's just coming oh, back in style. Is that what it is? Or? 100%. Yeah. I mean, it ties directly to two things that happened in history. One is, um, pastor and, pasteurization, which actually was discovered not as a way to keep humans healthier and safer, um, but he was researching why wine turned to vinegar, and he was researching why wine went bad. He was working for the wine industry, hmm. and so that is where, you know, he just, they discovered the bacteria and the pasteurization and these methods that, you know, of course, were huge lifesavers and really important. And also, at around the same time, they're discovering, you know, everything was wild yeast. Wines were wild yeast and all the alcohols and, and sourdough and, and bread and all of that. And sort of at the same time, you know, we've got um, the wine industry trying to make sure that they're not throwing out as much wine and, and making as much vinegar. And, and you've got um, the food industry beginning, you know, the processed food industry beginning. And and these are just kind of happening simultaneously. And, you know, so much of reading about manufactured foods and processed foods is, is just mind blowing and, and awful. (laughs) Like how we were just sort of steered into this. And then at the same time, canning is discovered and freezing. And, and so all these other preservation techniques that are really, really new under humankind sort of pushed out these older techniques. And so I like to say we, we you know, when we discovered the microbes that do the fermenting and they went the opposite way, you know, and, and tried to kill them all and sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. And now it's, it's coming back around. And also just probiotics, I think from the health side, that's another one that really picked up. When we were at farmer's markets a dozen years ago, I mean, there was maybe somebody that knew about probiotics, but it was just a new, new kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now, you know, now when we go around teaching, it's prebiotics and probiotics and postbiotics and, you know, people want to know how. Digestive enzymes and, you know. <laughs> and people know all that. You know, there's so many books now and there's so many, so much information out there that they're already coming at a much more educated level and they want to know, so what specific bacteria should we be eating? 
which is like a crazy, <laughs> which is a crazy thing because you've got two things. You've got kind of pharmaceuticals, which will can culture the right, the right, uh, microbes. Mm-hmm. And then you've got fermentation, which is just this wild zoo of whatever. Wild fermentation. Yeah, wild fermentation, which is a zoo of whatever. It's whatever was on the plant. It's whatever is in your fermentation cave. It's whatever is still on the barrel. You which know. honestly is what brings the terroir mm-hmm. in anything. But it's a mindset then from the customer's side. It's like, well, I want to make sure I want bifidobacteria in that. And it's like, well, you might. And you, you're going to have to test it. And the next batch you make may not. And that blows people's minds too. It's like, well, I've been told this strain is what I need. So I think you've got kind of pharmaceutical mind and just trust it's probably in there or other things are good that are in there, but we're never going to know what's in there. You know, and it's a different way of thinking about. Yeah. So it's, it's getting, it's getting the mindset, the modern mindset from isolation back to full spectrum, basically, mm-hmm. which is very similar to farming technique, which that's something that, uh, the whole fermentation and the analogies between fermentation and farming are mind blowing, you know, I mean, cause they are one in the same, but mm-hmm. it is sure. over the years. I, when I first started farming, I was like, Oh, I need to use, you know, um, this mycorrhiza, the specific mycorrhiza for my soils, you know? Mm-hmm. And then later on I realized I was like, well, why would I use just this one specific strain of mycorrhiza when, nowhere in nature does it actually just have one thing you know nowhere (laughs) yeah and so then you start thinking about the whole petri dish kind of concept which is if you have a clean petri dish it can fill up with everything but if you already have 55 different things in that petri dish then the bad stuff doesn't have as much room to compete you know Mm -hmm. so i think it's just getting the the general public to start accepting that as like it's okay oh for sure that's 99% of what, you know, walking somebody through how to ferment, whether it's, you know, yeast fermentation, fungi fermentation, or lactic acid, it's like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And you've got to trust, (laughs) trust in this. Like, like once you understand what the environment that the, um, uh, microbes that you're trying to use, if it's cider and wine and yeast, or if it's lactic acid bacteria, what their environment is, it's, it's just creating the environment, which is what you're doing exactly when you're creating a bed for, for the carrots or whatever. (laughs) Is the past knowledge, like the, the family knowledge, is it, have we lost that now that, because I was just thinking about this the other day when I was a kid, if there were new ideas that were coming in to, um, farming techniques or even fermentation techniques, you could say, Oh yeah. I like when I first started farming, I, I would say, Oh, I'm doing this. And like, Oh yeah. Grandpa used to farm like that. And so my curiosity now is have we moved one generation more past that, that knowledge is starting to get lost or can you like, when you guys are out educating people, can you kind of reawaken that old memory of like, somebody's like, Oh yeah, I think grandma used to make kraut. Do you, do you well, see that? It's, it's kind of interesting because in, in this country, it, it's a mixed bag, but mm-hmm. in, in most cases, very much so. I mean, my grandma was definitely of the, you know, she was a Rosie the Riveter, and then when the door, war was over, she she bought the convenience life hook, line, and sinker, as did a lot of grandmas. And so um, 
you know, and I'm a grandma now. So, <laughs> so I certainly didn't get it from my grandparents. I think there are places where there were, there are grandparents that are still doing this from, um, in this country. And then I think in other countries, you're there, that touchstone is a lot closer. Like it's not as far away. Um, and so the, the scary thing there is, you know, like in, in China, for example, there are so many regions and, and each region, you know, like we have microclimates there, they have these micro food traditions that are so, so, so specific. And I, I feel like as, you know, industrialization and, you know, the phones and, and whatnot are moving into these cultures that that's very much getting lost. Um, just because the priority isn't there to keep the crock going, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or whatever that, you know, that traditional fermentation mm-hmm. is that they're doing. And, um, you know, I I was in Indonesia a few years ago um, on the island that I was living in when I was a little, little girl. And, you know, there it's a very oral culture. And so, you know, the stories are are passed down and the, and the different things and the foods and, and whatnot. But, you know, I was talking to adults that were kids when I was a kid there and the, the younger generation is on the phone. Like they're learning from everything that's out there on the internet and not necessarily looking to what's around them as, as being important. And so, yeah, it's, that's kind of interesting. Um, but luckily fermentation is gaining interest throughout the whole planet. And so in, within these places, hopefully there are people that are looking for their local ferments. Yeah. And I think it's really hopeful in 2020, April, we were going to go to Japan for the third book on a book tour and that's the Miso Tempe Nato. Um, and we, at the very last minute when Japan closed down, that was the first of two book tours that got canned yeah never to return or oh no yeah because i mean everybody first thing everybody does publishers is they move dates thinking well this is going to last for a month or two and then we'll pick everything up life will go back to normal and then so you know everybody then released in the fall of 2020 there was a ton of books i see and we're still sequestered away and so everybody was doing zoom tours um, so anyone in 2020, 2021, which was our cider book and our vinegar book, we were just on these really lame zoom calls where we're like, you know, okay, pick up your cider cheers. And this was going to be the tour where, you know, this is after tours where we were, he's, he's a little salty about the cider tour. where we were chopping vegetables <laughs> in a hotel room, you know, or, in Pal- very sad about the or cider tour. the bean tempe natto. We're cooking beans in our hotel room. Yeah, and carrying hot crock pot of beans down the hallway to this place we're going to do a demo to try to sell some books. You know, writing books is romantic. In in the <laughs> yeah, and making kimchi in a hotel room. Let me tell you, the next person that went in that hotel, they're going to think somebody died yeah. because kimchi. Oh, you know. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, can you imagine what that's like when you walk in? It's like what happened here. And then this was the cider tour. We were just going to go find local ciders and do a taste tasting. Well, I think there were. A lot of East Coast cider festivals that that were on the <sighs> tour. I'm still. He's salty. I have a lot of pain around this. Yeah. So, um, but the happy part about all that is, this fall we're going back to Japan. 
Oh, awesome. And the weird thing about that is, but to your point, is there are the younger generation in Japan has stopped eating things like natto. It's something that, you know, older generations ate, but not so much. And then I think the excitement around things like natto or even miso, it, it then people are like, well, why, why are the Americans eating natto? That's crazy. You know, we don't eat natto and it's our food. And so then I think, I think this is a case where cultures can be excited about another culture's food and, and adopt it and then change it in the way that makes sense for their food ways which then enlivens the people that actually came up with that food because they're like, whoa, look what the crazy Americans are doing. You know, they're, mm. they're making um, coconut cocoa bite energy ball things and they're sticking natto in it so you can get the natto and not taste it. And they're secretly thinking, that's a fucking cool idea because <laughs> I don't like eating it on raw eggs. Yeah. You know, and so I think, I think the younger generations, and now we can say that now it's, it's like, but, you know, I think... I think it's okay if your grandma didn't. My both my sides had big gardens, but they canned everything, so they basically pasteurized everything. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's okay to start and be. I'm going to be that cool grandma in 20 years because I'm going to teach myself how to do it. Um, I don't. I think it's okay if we lose it and then bring it back again. Yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to look at it, and it's like one of the pro arguments for the. Uh, the internet. You guys have heard of the internet, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that thing. <laughs> but you know, that's one of those things that I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for too, is that you do get that information. Um, information exchange happens really quickly. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure that that is a contributor to the, this current trend of fermentation really taking oh, off. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the fermentation community on online, you know, whether it's, on Reddit or socials or, or wherever um, is kind of a small but mighty, mighty group. I mean, it, it's an enthusiastic um, group and, and very, very into sharing. I mean, that part is, is just fascinating and beautiful to see is how, how this community of people really um, celebrates each other and, and, and shares with each other and, you know, recipes or ideas or you know mm-hmm. crazy things that worked or didn't work so they that sound is happening. Cul- they sound cultured yeah <laughs> i had to do that you one. had to do that <laughs> it was it was just nicely played <laughs> but uh, you know what the other thing that's happening i mean if if we talk to build off of what christopher was saying a little bit about japan is um i mean koji has gone crazy um so that's, you know, Aspergillus oryzae. It's a, it's a cultivated mold. It's been cultivated for thousands and thousands of years. And it's um, in certain cultures, like in China and Korea and other Asian cultures, it, it's cultivated different ways. But in um, Japan, they have, you know, that's where it's called koji. And they've got labs that produce, you know, amazing spores and, and this, that, and the other. And, and it's really important to the sake industry, the miso industry, the soy sauce industry, the, the soy sauce makers, you know, where in the seventies, there were still hundreds of small brands, you know, it, it's like anything that it's getting fewer and fewer. These small brands are making it. Um, and I think with the Koji spores, for example, this is a really important part to all these foods there's only three koji spore 
manufacturers now. And they're struggling in Japan because their customers, which were the producers of these foods, are, are going away. But the international community and the chefs and, and all the people internationally who are like koji crazy right now, um, you know, are another way that these businesses are able to, you know, keep their doors open. So that's kind of cool. Hmm. And that's, that's 100% because of the internet. Right. And why Koji right now? Is there, is there, is it just like every other meme and trend? It just took off or, um, I mean, Koji is, Koji's fascinating. It's so it's a, uh, I think you anyway have people that, you know, are mycelium nuts and, mm-hmm. and love. So it also brings in, you know, the fun, the fun, fungi people into the fold of fermentation because you're, you're growing mold on rice or whatever. And, and I think what happened is when Koji left Asia, you know, all that tradition and all that, this is how we do it. And this is what we do it for. And, and all of that, you know, kind of opened up and people are like, okay, well, what is Koji? Koji's a way to harvest enzymes. I mean, Koji's what uh, malting is in the West for grains. Um, you know, it's, it's using those enzymes to, to open up those starches and, and get at the smaller parts, the sugars and the, the fatty acids and, and the amino acids. And so it creates incredible flavor. And so everybody is, you know, especially people that are, you know, chefs or, or just home cooks that are really fascinated by all these things, find it like taking a magic wand. It's like, what will happen if I put Koji on this or that, you know, and they're finding, um, people are, are doing charcuterie with it because it's making the process go faster because those enzymes are getting in there and curing that meat much faster. People that are interested in vegetable charcuterie are using it on beets and they're creating these wonderful, tasty slices of beets that mirror, you know, ham or something. And so there's just so much potential because you're, you're harvesting enzymes. And I think it's, that's where, you know, maybe the nerds that started fermenting with lactic acid, you know, 10 years ago, they're like, okay, what else is there? And, um, so people are addicted to koji fermentation. So I don't, I don't know that that's going to enter everybody's household, but it's definitely not going anywhere. Right. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I want to say that Josh at Moss in Ashland has been messing with a lot of that kind of stuff too. He, are you guys familiar with, with his restaurant in Ashland? It's called Moss. He's, he's won a ton of awards here in the Northwest. I feel like, I feel like I've, I've heard of his work and it was sort of during that pandemic time. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't really, yeah, he just keeps, he just keeps going for the stars as far as the work that he does. And I, there's a couple of folks that I work with that, go there on a regular basis because they live over on that side of the, the valley. The and, world, yeah. <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing, though. He's just, and he used to get some vegetables from us, and I always appreciated working with him because it's kind of what you guys are saying as far as, like, the the one place in the Bay that's just using, uh, that was a ferment and now is a dust or, or whatever. He would come out here and look for different vegetables at different stages, even Mm. like brassicas, they're flowering and stuff like that. And then he would ferment those flowers to use. And so I guarantee he's messing with Koji. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
it's pretty magical. Like mm-hmm. y- you can do so much with Koji. Yeah. It's almost like a, it, cause you know, uh, the whole, like, um, Oh, what do they call it? The science of gastronomy or whatever. That was so big for so many years where it was very like meticulous. And now we're more into like magicianship again, where you're just kind of like throwing different cultures at stuff and seeing what sticks and then mm-hmm. working with that, which is pretty cool. And there's still, there's still a whole faction that geeks out on the science side of it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the kitchens look like labs and they're very precise on that. And, you know, that's the whole kind of Noma side of mm-hmm. the world that really looks focuses on that. And I think there's some people that just look at those books and they know they're never going to get a, you know, a chemical spectrometer to tell what the details are, but it's They're fascinated by it. Um, yep. And there's the other people, like you said, it's just the magical part. And as long as they know it's not going to hurt them, it's pretty, it's pretty magical. And we have kids, you know, speaking of kids, like we teach a lot of kids in different festivals and things how to do it. And you forget how stupid we become as adults. Like kids don't, you don't have to go through all those layers of, well, why does it do this? Or why does it do that? You just tell them, you know, these are microbes and they like to eat sugar like you. And you're like, yeah, I love sugar. And they fart and that's CO2. (laughs) And like everybody gets that, you know, and if you're, we tell them like if you're in a room and you just had a whole bunch of pizza or a whole bunch of burritos, you know, how you're going to have to fart. Your mom's going to open the door and go, oh, yuck. Well, that's the Ziploc bag. You got to burp it because there's all those farts in there. And they get the basic science of it at their level. And you see the parents like, are like, oh, that's how fermentation works. You know, like they, they need the fart example to understand CO2 right. production. And so I think for adults too, if the kids learn and the kids aren't afraid, but we also had a lot of the things that would just kill us were, you know, at the farmer's market and they came in cause they, everything was pretty. So they thought it was something sweet. And then the parents look and go, oh God, that's sauerkraut. And they take a step back and the kids are just digging in to all the samples. And we'd hear the parents go, oh, you're not going to like that. As they're just shoveling it in. Oh, wow. And then the kids stop shoveling and you're like, Like you were almost there. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You could have just said something a little bit different. That that kid now, you know, and that's a young gut microbiome. Yep. That's just going to start craving it. And if the parents would support it, now you got a kid that's, you know, probably has a better GI tract when they get to be teenagers and just eat Doritos. Well, they've laid a foundation they didn't have before. Yeah. You know, so I think, I think even if parents think they're too late to enjoy these foods, get the kids started on it. The kids will love it. Um, And then, I mean, our grandkids love the, what's it called? The the Koji rice. What do they call it? Fuzzy rice. Fuzzy rice. And they'll just, because it's sweet. It's like a Mm -hmm. sweet popcorn thing and they just eat it. So I, I would love to know what their GI tracks look like, you know, <laughs> because they started out eating all this stuff. You know, they're the kids that are going to say, yeah, my grandparents made some crazy stuff. Yeah. But yeah. What's your guys cave look like these days? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not pretty right now. Really? I've got some really old, wonderfully, wonderfully old misos that are mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, I've got a lot of really neat vinegars that are that are wonderful but we don't have I mean I've we've got you know some kimchi and just things that we're going through but we don't have anything like super cool happening right now nothing um nothing new (laughs) we have a we have a refrigerator that's completely full of like old ferments that are from different photo shoots 
or but they're all they're all in they're all still there's nothing bad in there yeah. you know i went through after about uh three three or four years after the hot sauce book and i took all i mean there's we like hot sauce but you know by the time you add recipe testing and for all the things that did work and didn't work but a lot of it is still good food it's not like it was bad bad you end up with a lot of hot sauce for two people <laughs> and so i went we had a fridge that was mostly hot sauces and i went through um and took some of them and put them all in one pot and reduced 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 and and made um just this wonderful thicker hot sauce and then i back slopped it with you know some microbes woke it up again and then and then jarred it and that took a big amount and made a small amount which we're almost through now mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also you know dehydrating things so mm-hmm. everything becomes something eventually even if that wasn't how we were originally going to eat it i had a wall of cider the cider book mm-hmm. we did like 100 maybe 80 80 to 100 different styles different things um you know like manzanita flower and so we'd have to capture everything that was in bloom now and we'd culture it in some juice and then wait for the apples to come out in the fall so you had like this year process right so the cider book started many years before and we just had this wall of all these beautiful different ciders all different colors and when we would you know, that was the one that we would do the Zoom calls. So I'd set up everything down in the in the cave with lights. And people just see this wall of cider behind you, you know. And say, yeah, that's the book right there. Um, and we still have a few cider, uh, maybe a couple dozen bottles left. And they don't last as well. Yeah. No. no so if it, they just kind of go off after a while or? Um, they... They do, they, they actually get a little watery too. Um, the alcohol kind of fades in them. Um, so they're just not as nice. There has been some exceptions like the Cocoa Nibs cider. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that happened is we got all those bottles that had some weird kind of, they were they were the bale top um, bottles, but the gasket was not rubber. I don't know what it was, but I think we got, I mean, we just got a lot where we got, you know, surface yeast and different things in there much, much later. And we realized everything that kind of went off was those, that particular batch of bottles. So you think there was something funky embedded into the the seals or something possibly? I just don't think they were bad seals. sealing. Oh, they were just bad seals. Yeah, and I don't know if, I mean, it didn't happen for about a year, so I think it either they went bad or it was just so slow that we didn't notice mm. it. Um, but yeah, that was a bummer. <laughs> but I've been, I've been crazy about fermenting um, citrus lately, so I've done a lot of preserved citrus. So today for dinner we had... Um, a sauce made out of um, preserved uh, blood orange. It was pretty. Is tasty. it rind and all, or the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, and it it breaks down that that rind and that skin enough that it's just you chop it up and it's just deliciousness. Wow, that's yeah. There's so much. You, I mean, you can ferm- ferment anything basically. Yeah, I I can't think of anything that you cannot ferment. You know, whether it tastes good or not might be a different story, sure. but I mean, fermentation 
as a lot of people like to say, is controlled rot. You know, I mean, you're you're catching something on the continuum. I mean, apples are are just a wonderful example, or any fruit, right? Because you've got this blossom that comes that comes out, and in that blossom, in that nectar, is already the yeast that will eventually ferment it. And the bees buzz around, and they their little bee butts, you know, move the yeast around to different flowers. And I mean, part of the reason the nectar smells and the and and flowers have scent is there's a tiny bit of fermentation going on in that nectar, creating the smell to attract hmm. the pollinators. And then, you know, that apple grows. And we used to always think um, that the yeast was only on the outside of, of fruit and an apple. But um, a study was done and like that core is full of the microbes as well um and so that yeast is is in there from the get-go and you know it falls to the ground and it rots on the ground and becomes not rots but first becomes alcohol and you know that's when you know the animals or or whatever would get drunk on it and and then you know the lact or the acetic acid bacteria is right there waiting for that alcohol and it's going to turn it into vinegar and and the fascinating thing about the acetic acid bacteria is it will eventually, after it's consumed all the alcohol um, what w- and turned that into acid, it, it doesn't give up. It starts eating the acid and turns it all back into water again. And so like fermentation, you know, if you look at it on that way, is just one of the many circular systems in this, you know, whole planet. Yeah. We'd be we'd be better to just let it affect us like it should <laughs> instead of combat it. I think. Yeah, it's just really interesting too, and in all of your guys' language explaining all of these, which are it's always great to hear people that understand the process. The correlations to soil is mind blowing. It really is because I just am thinking about like, oh yeah, that's how these things, you know, these certain minerals and certain nutrients become bioavailable in the soil. You know, it's. It's pretty cool. And it, it, it really, the two work together to reinforce mm-hmm. the fact that we need to have soils that are alive. Oh, 100%. Instead of, instead of just this sterility thing. And I'm get at a point now in my life where I don't even have to argue that it's me versus them anymore or whatever I did when I was in my early stages of being a young organic farmer. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of just like, no, wait, why, why isn't everybody just going back towards having the soil be more complete and more whole, you mm-hmm. know, it, and it is a promising thing though. Um, I spend probably too much time on Twitter, but there's so many really cool <laughs> agricultural people throughout the, throughout the whole U S and the world, but mostly through the U S um, a lot of row cropping farmers in the Midwest. Now the whole mm-hmm. cover crop, movement is massive. It's amazing. Yeah. And we're talking people that are classically like 20 years ago, if you brought this up to grandpa, he would have thought you were nuts. And now it's just part of that system. Um, and, and it's really cool because now when I'm talking to those folks, I'm like, Oh, you throw covers down for this. I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, Oh, so what do you do about this to make sure you're not killing the benefits of that off? And they're like, yeah, we don't spray anything. And that, part of the process now and I'm like oh really why is that they're like well duh because we want the 
microbes to be there to break it down because we saw that when we were spraying it wouldn't break down the same and we wouldn't get the same efficacy in it i was just like interesting so that's the part that i think is really cool super cool is seeing like large scale ag coming around but it's just neat to see how it's it's mm-hmm. getting into the zeitgeist, kind of like what you guys are saying about fermentation is yeah. slowly creeping into the zeitgeist. Well, I mean, it's it's super important. Like, I mean, the microbes that keep the soil alive, and I mean, we're understanding more and more that without the microbes, like, we don't live. <laughs> yep. And so... <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating, because I grew up in Missouri, and me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did we grow up like a couple hours from each other, I think? I don't know. Where, where did you grow up? Northwest, up north of St. Joseph. Okay. So I was northeast of St. Joseph, Trenton, near oh, really? Chillicothe. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. were you? I was in Tarkio. Tarkio. Oh, that's fancy. Yeah. Do you know where that is? Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I, I knew that you were from Missouri, but I couldn't remember where. So, yeah. Like my earliest jobs were, uh, you know, the Steiger tractor would come in. I was under the tree. And he flipped the bins up and I'm pouring all the soybeans in, you know, as fast as I can. He's yelling at me and then I flip the bins down and he takes off again. And he's planting on a moonscape. You know, I can see the far end, maybe some trees, but it's just, you know, light brown moonscape. And then pulling pulling weeds between beans, you know, was the other one to do. But all of it was just like there was a crop. Yep. And there was this thing the crop grew up in which was a, kind of like a sterile media. Yep. So when you're telling me that a Midwestern father, farmer would say, duh, to you about that, I'm just like, that blows my mind. That's like, oh my God, I have hope now. And it's not across the board, but it's the younger generation that I see there. And there's some really, there's some really interesting farmers out of um, Northern Iowa and, and Minnesota right now. They're doing uh, like multi-cropping uh, out in, on, like on scale, like, going between different grains and or rolling like wheat and soybean and corns and in, in a, in a season. And I don't understand. I, it, I guess it's probably winter wheat and then mm-hmm. they come into like soy in the, in the spring, but they're interplanting. So it's like, it, yeah. look, it looks like a, I call it a zebra scape. So it's like you have a row that's one thing and a row that's something else. And then they have, so as they're harvesting, one like the wheat the winter wheat crop coming through then you have soybeans coming up underneath Uh, which is and of course there are some people that think that they're weirdos but it's just cool to see that younger generation of farmers that are the row crop farmers that are starting to to innovate just like the fermentation there's the younger generations like nope we're going to develop the thing we're going to pass on yeah exactly so i mean there are things to have hope for i Mm -hmm. think one thing that I really would love to hear you guys talk about too is I know you guys have traveled uh, a fair amount since you started writing books. What are some of the, I, there has to be some interesting stories of people that you've run across when you're teaching these things and all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, wait, why are you doing it this way? You could do it this way because so-and-so did it like this. I mean, do you have any stories that come to mind of anybody you've run across as in your travels that was really intriguing? I mean, I, I don't have anything that's jumping out at me, um, in that way, other than just loving to meet people and, you know, they come with such open, open hearts and, and open stories about, you know, what fermentation is for them. Um, most of the people that I'm teaching are, are new, new to it, um, 
or they've, you know, just started doing it, which is, is wonderful because they'll bring me things to taste and, you know, want to share how something, you know, they feel like it's changed their life. Um, so Mm. that, that's, I think a huge thing. It kind of goes back to your original question about grandparents. I mean, I have had people, a lot of people write letters or, or tell me stories that, you know, they thought they didn't know that grandpa's pickle recipe was just fermented and that was the secret sauce and tasting a fermented pickle, you know, way after, but brought back that taste memory and realizing nobody had grandpa's recipe, but it still wasn't grandpa's recipe, but they knew now what grandpa did. And and I, that's cool. That's always really warms my heart as far as like learning, um, techniques. I think that you know, comes when, you know, a bunch of us nerds afterwards are having dinner together and, (laughs) you know, we're just like throwing stuff around. Um, and then, you know, we went to, in what, 2016, 17, was it? We went to Myanmar. Yes. Well, you want to talk about that? I mean, that was, that was wonderful. We were searching for tea leaf salad. So it's the only edible fermented tea leaf and it's a tea leaf salad. It's from that region. I mean, it's the only culture that eats tea leaves instead of just drinks tea. Yeah. And where is this again? Myanmar. Where's that? Uh, used to be called Burma. Oh, okay. Sure. That's Myanmar and right next to Thailand. Okay. And we went there and the country had only been opened up for a couple of years, I think, to Americans. Aung San Suchi. I can't remember her last name. She was, yeah, she would... She'd been released from prison, now was kind of the prime minister or president, I don't remember which. That was before the that was before the military actually then decided, nope, we're gonna actually take the country back and threw her back in prison. But so there was a window there and we were there trying to find and we were just traveling the country uh eating tea leaf salad. And it's funny because you know our family, so the average height I think is five two in Burma. And we had Dimitri, who's six nine, Ariana, who's six foot, me that's six six, and Kirsten, who's five nine. And so when we, we were just this white weird blob of humanity going through, and so and people are, I I think it's well, I mostly thought that we were Dutch because they have <laughs> they don't have a lot of American Dutch or German t- tourists, but they do have a lot of Dutch tourists. <laughs> and then when they knew we were there to eat their tea leaf salad. And it's a bunch of different things that are put together, and it's very regional. And so we would be like looking at it, just like pulled into this shop that has lacquered things, and then somehow we'd get around to, and the driver would say, "Yeah, they're looking for tea leaf," and say, "Oh, tea leaf! My my wife makes a great tea leaf." And so we'd go then in the back part of the room where they're painting all this stuff, and then she'd put together a tea leaf salad. She's <laughs> like, "Here, try mine." And uh, we were trying to get up into the hills to find where the... the it was in the Shan, the Shan region, which is right below China, up in the mountains. And unfortunately, there was a lot of civil unrest. And so our fixer at the last minute was like, you guys can't go up there. They're shooting each other. Oh, yeah. So we had to divert someplace else. Um, but there was tea leaf salads everywhere. And one of the best ones we found is at a zoo. You know, at the little concession stand. A little kiosk. Kiosk thing. <laughs> they made a tea leaf salad there. And it was pretty damn good. <laughs> 
uh, our kids were just like so over tea leaf salad. <laughs> but uh, we did. Um, so the reason we wanted to go up to Namshan in that Shan region was that is where the main area that they do the fermenting of the tea leaves. And that's really what we wanted to see. Um, so we went into this other area that, you know, is kind of below it. Um, and we still were able to kind of go up in the hills and, and find people that were fermenting the tea leaves. So that was super, hmm. super cool. And that was the reason you were visiting over there was just hunting down the tea leaf salad or were you there for other reasons or just traveling? We were a little of both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the known, if you're a food writer, the cool thing is there's food everywhere. So if you want to write it off, Oh, right. Pick a spot. Yeah. And there's something there that you could write about. Right. Uh, and so, you know, off you go. It's like the Instagram influencers. Like you can always take a bikini shot anywhere where well, you can always eat anywhere <laughs> and the food's really good. I think Argentina too, right? Because we spent a really rainy day in that. In that. Yeah. With a young woman who heard that we were coming to Argentina, saw my Instagram and invited us over to meet her family who were vegan macrobiotic in, in Buenos Aires. And they had a little, a little, uh, kind of shop where they sold, sold things. And the, she was going to show us all kinds of things, but the rain was just, you weren't moving around in it. And we hung out all day with her father and drank a hell of a lot of mate. <laughs> mate. You'll start seeing through a wall after all day with a mate. <laughs> There's stuff in there. Yeah. Oh. It was great though, because we drank mate the way you're supposed to drink it traditionally and passed, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he knew how to obviously he, he, but he was very proud of like the way he made it. And it was, it was, it was a good day. So I think that's, that's the really magic is when, you know, you get invited into somebody's house or when you get invited or when somebody brings you something they've made at home to me, that's yeah. And I mean, the whole bizarre thing of all of this is, you know, we spent before all this, you know, we spent 15, 20 years just me not going anywhere, like just hanging out, raising kids with goats, you know, and, and never saw this coming. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was one of my questions for you guys was, was, I mean, if you looking back on all this, when I first met you guys, I would have been 2002 or 2003. I don't think you guys would have ever predicted that this was your life path, right? Nothing that we've talked about. Not, not, not any of it. Which is awesome. I mean, it just shows that you can live multiple lives in one lifetime. Absolutely, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That part. And, and some days, some days I wonder like, you know, <laughs> I, I think not, not the travel, not the connecting with people worldwide, not all of that, but sort of the slog of just keeping it all going and how many hours now that I don't spend outside with my hands in the soil. Mm-hmm because of all the demands on my time, just writing and, and Mm -hmm. just having to connect and keep connected. Yeah. I mean, I get so many emails and I'm, I, um, I do answer them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some days I'm like, why do I answer some of these? (laughs) But I do. And, and I, I mean, I enjoy connecting with people. It's just, it's a lot of time Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then there's, um, you know, writing a book doesn't, is, doesn't an income make. It's, it's, you know, kind of like everything that I've been passionate about, you know, farming, right. <laughs> you know, homesteading, tiny fermentation company, like none of these things yeah. <laughs> make them. Um, 
they're all lost leaders. <laughs> they're all lost leaders. Even when we were going to publish our own book, we were like, oh, maybe we'll be a micro publisher. And somebody said, you make less money there than you will farming, you know, yeah. like don't do it. And so, um, so all the teaching and the, the traveling around was sort of to, again, provide an income, you know, I'm still, still working on what, what is this income thing? And so that's, that's kind of where all this other hustle comes in that takes so many hours of the day. It's the mm -hmm. hustle. Even the writing ultimately isn't the thing that makes me sit at my desk the most, hmm. which is also sad. <laughs> it's just the, all the other parts that keep it all connected. Yeah. It's this, um, it's this hustle gig. Mm -hmm. Well, the fermentation school too, Kirsten's co-founder with a really cool kick-ass woman butcher in North Carolina. If you ever want to talk to her, she's, she's amazing. Yeah. She started in farming. Oh, cool. And her, 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 her world ended up in this place and in butchery because she was raising animals on farm and needed, you know, the ethical piece to go the full way through. Oh, I see. Is she, so I was looking, I, I looked at the website last night at Fermentation School, and I think there's like an intro video. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Meredith. Yeah, okay. that's Meredith. Meredith Lee. Cool. Yeah. Ethical butchery. Yep. So you've got now over a dozen, what, over a dozen instructor, women instructors all over the world with courses. And I think Yeah, I scrolled through. I was oh, like 50 some like, courses. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that was a COVID pivot. Mm -hmm. um, like I was saying, we, uh, you know, Part of my traveling has been the income portion of what I'm doing. Um, and so when COVID, you know, grounded me, mm -hmm. <laughs> grounded us, because you were traveling with the teaching at the time too, we're like, all right, well, people have been asking for online courses, so I guess this is the moment. Um, we thought about it. In fact, we even had a hot sauce class that we'd hired somebody locally to to video a few years earlier, and I looked at it, and I was like, you can't edit me out of it and so <laughs> we're not going to put it out there <laughs> she got over that <laughs> I, I found a lot of fault with it um but then you know that was the silver lining like it it forced the issue and so we started our little classes and it was actually three years in april mm -hmm. that we put our first flower power class out it was just about harvesting wild yeasts and mm. you know from the, the flowers in your neighborhood meanwhile meredith had started you know, brain dumping her, her amazing knowledge into courses. And she started a little school. And, and so we kept talking and we're like, you know, it's a noisy internet world. Let's try to at least band together. And we did. And when we did, we thought, you know, there's other women that are just amazing knowledge bearers out there that we need to, we'd love to lift their voices. And so it just, just like the books, it was totally organic. And now I found that I have another job and, you know, and we wanted to flip publishing on its head. Both of us are authors and both of us realize that the publisher makes a lot of money on the book and we make a tiny bit. Yeah. And so we thought with the fermentation school, that's what we're going to do. We don't pay ourselves. We also only get the money from when our own courses sell, just like all of the other creators. So it's um, much more of a collective that way. Um, the fermentation school gets 10% to pay for the tech stack, keep the lights on, and um, you know the creator gets 90% of of what their course sells for. And so, you know, we feel really good about what we're doing, um, 
and you know we're a benefits corporation and so it's you know about giving back to the community in that way as well um so yeah that takes a lot of <laughs> a lot of time but I, but i believe in it i think um it's cool i think ultimately as much as i love the travel i want the knowledge to be accessible for anybody no matter where they are so that that part feels better i mean i'd rather not be going places and seeing people learn that way as well and teaching teaching people in their own communities you know it, it really is i think something to be taught and passed on and the fermentation school too like it seems like there's no limit to i mean it seems like it will just naturally keep growing it mm-hmm. can easily keep growing and adding more and more people or as as one teacher comes in another teacher can replace and it seems like it's a very seems like a really neat um neat hub yeah and we have it's like two communities within the school we've got the community of the creators and the women that we're supporting and you know we never thought this was going to be part of our job Meredith and I and and we certainly are learning as we go (laughs) but what ended up happening was you know as we learned what SEO is. We're now teaching these women what SEO is. And, and, um, and it's really cool. Part of what the pandemic did is it, I think it gave us all a chance to be more authentic. And so these classes take place in, in their, the women's homes, you know, and it's okay. And it's, the lighting's good, the sound's good. And that's all that really matters. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect and slick. And I, I sort of love that about the school. And then, of course, you know, especially with things like lactic acid fermented vegetables, there's going to be, you know, an incredible amount of overlap. And about a year and a half ago, another woman who, Jory, MD, she had done the same thing. She was a fermentation person in Hudson Valley and um, she and her husband co-owned a restaurant and of course the restaurant closed and and so she started her school of funk which I think is a great great name school of funk that's awesome and she approached us and said hey you know I'm out here doing this alone and I would love to join up with you guys and and we're like yeah sure great and you know, I had vinegar classes and she had vinegar classes, but, um, you know, it worked out. We don't feel like there's only one voice to each subject. And one of the things that we do with the different instructors is if something really matches or goes together, like Jory and I and our vinegar classes, you know, people can buy my class, they can buy her class separately, or we've taken them, we've bundled the class, they could buy both for a slight discount with a couple of extra recipes. Mm -hmm. And now everybody wins. And so it's been really fun to support the creator community and each other. And and also then we've got um, the student community and supporting their learning journey and and all of that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lot of moving parts that I would have never guessed. (laughs) I don't know if we would have done this. It sounds like I, I have a friend who's really into Peloton, you know, the whole bike thing. Uh-huh. And it sounds, it's kind of a weird analogy, but he always talks about like some weeks I like this instructor and other weeks I like <laughs> this instructor. And if I'm feeling really spicy, I'll go and ride, <laughs> ride with this instructor. So I can see how it'd be very similar where you yeah. just kind of keep trying around until mm-hmm. you, 
I mean, that's kind of the way education should go anyway, I think. You don't just get stuck with a college professor that you hate, and you're like, oh, I just got to do this. For sure. You know, you find somebody that you resonate with, and then you, because you're going to learn better that way. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, that's for sure. And we also, um, in January, started a membership program where people can, um, you know, pay a monthly subscription and, you know, get some, some bonuses and, and discounts and, and also have within the platform, we have a community space and, you know, talk to each other. My, my bigger hope is, you know, that we get enough numbers in there that, that, that acts in the way that social media does, but in a much smaller group setting where everybody is, is into that and there's no algorithms to control their conversations. (laughs) Well, that's the, I mean, honestly, that's the next move. I feel that you're going to see, I think there's always going to be the global internet, but I think you're going to see there's more of this decentralization. It's already moving that way. And agreed. the whole crypto movement kind of like touches on that because they, but they think about decentralization in a very, like from a, uh, monetary sort of way but i'm seeing socially people are moving more towards like rural but online rural settings Mm -hmm. you know like that's exactly that's a great analogy because that's how i see it and that was when we were picking our platform you know because there's a lot of different platforms that will host classes that was a really important one for me personally is I wanted that because I feel like you're right. I, th- I feel like it's slowly happening and, and that ultimately that's where people are going to get really valuable interactions. You're not trying to reach an audience of, cause that's the, the other thing now that I'm doing this podcast, I'm researching a lot and just trying to figure out like, how do you take this places? And you realize gone are the ages for most people to try to reach everyone. There's no reason to try to reach everyone because the only reason you try to reach everyone is so you can make like eight bazillion dollars. Right. But that's not realistic. But what you're trying to do is just have a good life. Right. You're Mm -hmm. trying to build community, have people that you care about. And yes, it still costs money to have a good life, but you can do that with not very many people as part of your community. So I think we're seeing And that's why they, everything that I keep reading right now is that says, you know, niche down, niche down to everything and just find that group of people. And then the cool thing that I think is going to happen is you're going to have some people that are in the fermentation community here are also in the living soil community here. It's that vendor diagram that Mm -hmm. overlaps. Oh, 100%. And you start realizing that like, that's kind of the way that our community structures are going to start being online and then i'm really curious if that starts happening in real life as well you know as far as is that i have hope for little valleys like our valley that at some point we can we can find a a groove like that Um, yeah you should tell the story about the soybean farmers that were in the miso class oh yeah so (laughs) that was a while ago now yeah yeah um so mother earth news fair Uh um which is I, I miss going to those in that it was just a wonderful cross section of, you know, all the people like, like that, you know, you had the Midwestern farmers to, you know, the preppers to the Amish, the Amish and the hippies. And like, they're all there together, just loving on the information. And I was doing a lot of those and did a miso class and, um, 
had the soybeans and we're taking the soybeans and squishing them with, um, they've been in a pressure cooker. They've been mm. in so they just came cooker. out of that. Yeah. Squishing them with, with the, uh, uh, Koji rice. And there was a couple there and they're making their miso and they're, they keep looking at the beans. Right. And then they're like, this is what our soybeans look like when the rain gets on them and they get wet. <laughs> Are these, you know, just soybeans? <laughs> like, yeah, they're and just soybeans. And then we had them taste one. And then, yeah, they'd never tasted a soybean. Soybean butter farmers for 30 years. Wow. Never tasted a soybean. Interesting. Why would you eat one? Right. And it was just this, it was a wonderful thing to watch them. And then they're just like, my God, they're edible. And they taste pretty good. And we got our hands doing this. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I... <laughs> You would think they would have at least had like soy nuts or something like that, you know, like from the convenience yeah. store. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And then they were excited. They were like, oh, we can do this with ours. And I'm thinking, you have that's no, a lot of soy. You, you could really go. <laughs> you have no limit in how much you wanted. Yeah. I would love to know if they ever did. Yeah. 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 Hopefully their miso turned out well and they got hooked. Yeah, I would hope so. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have the largest miso company <laughs> yeah. in the Midwest. <laughs> so are you working on cider right now too? No, no. Uh, he's, he's not doing any of this anymore. No. So I, I pivoted again. So, you know, my, I've been volunteering at the Brit festival, which is a lo local music festival. Oh yeah. Since 2006. And then last year I uh, hired on full time to run the house doing the shows and do the volunteers. And then in December, I became chief operating officer. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm helping run a $6 million nonprofit yeah. around music. Um, I love every day. That's cool. Yeah. And it, the thing that's driving me is, you know, if it's not apocalyptic smoke, <laughs> right? So if it's a decent night. Mm-hmm. And especially coming out of COVID, so 2021, things were still funky. We were still had to test or vaccine. 2022, last year, people just come out mm -hmm. and, you know, like Old Crow Medicine Show or um, I'm just thinking of some of the bands or either ZZ Top with the old, like 60, 70-year-olds. People were just letting loose. And you could tell it's like they just needed to be in the fresh air and hear live music and just, you know, forget Yep. And so like, and I see that. And then, you know, now there's the young groups that I have no idea what the music is. So it forces me as a mid 50 year old man mm -hmm. to hear music that I normally don't pick on Spotify or iTunes. Right. <laughs> you know, our little, <laughs> our little bubble that we have of like good music. Yeah. Well, I'm in it there for three hours with it. So, and pretty soon I'm, I'm digging it, you know, and, and I, or I see 2,000 people that really dig it, and then you're kind of questioning yourself, like, well, why don't you like it? Because they all like it. Right. And so it's keeping my brain young, I think, doing that way. And then the thing, the thing that's really driving me is just um, we're trying to really green it to the point where, you know, we're carbon neutral. Um, the buses come in, and that solar-generated electricity, we have zero waste, so I'm trying to figure out how to compost, you know, meal plates from 1500 people because I want, I want the 20 somethings and the teenagers who have inherited a planet that's 
not the ones we got. And they got a lot of stuff ahead of them that's just can be kind of depressing. And if, so they're coming out to see a show, you know, I want it to be a place where they feel good about where they're at. Like, oh, look, they're composting stuff. Oh, they're doing take back. Oh, they're doing solar. So that they, it just kind of completes that this was a great night. Yeah. You know, because I think, I think we've got to, we owe it to the younger generation to figure out how we can set up those kind of situations to where they can go someplace and just feel good about everything that's going on for one night, you know, and then go back to whatever the hell they got to go back to. Yep. And so that's kind of my, you know, like my last 10 years, 15 years, this is what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kirsten's not, not tra- your last 10 or 15 years of, of work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> well, you never know, right? <laughs> you never, you, you never know. Kirsten's still traveling around the world. She's got a, she's got a European tour five weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she's got like a residence in Canada and we're going to Japan. So, you know, I, I'm tagging along one, one of those stops I'm, to Japan. Yeah, I'm taking the Japan. Yeah. yeah, at the end of the season, but all the other stuff's during the season. You know, so from May to mm-hmm. into September, I'm I'm booked. Wow, I'm I'm on the hill most of the time. Yeah, that's awesome though. But so so I mean, I guess I probably need to probably need to title this this episode just pivot. That'd be good. <laughs> Is there something that you want to talk about? That <laughs> any, you want to any pivot oh, that you, you don't know about <laughs> yeah, pivot right <laughs> no you guys have i i think that you guys have been excellent pivoters over the years you know and we have too i mean that's you guys a, have too for yeah. sure mm-hmm. i mean i think that's what this world takes needs mm-hmm. it really is you, well the 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 one job for the rest of your life it doesn't gone. it do, yeah there's no reason it doesn't make any sense at all or it becomes a thing. You meet somebody that's done that and they're just, it's become their thing that they want to keep doing the same thing because, and they seem really sad. Mm-hmm. I think you feel then you're locked in and it becomes your thing. Like right. I'm going to keep doing this one thing. And mm-hmm. it, so I think it, it's, it's brave to let go of those things and do, do something else. And then for some of us serial pivoters, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. you know, when like last year's crop, was better than this year's crop. And it's like, it's time to switch. It's time to do something else here. The, you know, the land just isn't loving this. Yep. And we got to do something else. Yep. And I think, I think humans are like that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot of our homestead pivoting too is water. Yeah. The true. lack of it. I mean, when we, I mean, we, we gave you or traded you with those giant, um, you know, pipes for the sprinkler systems oh, right. that used to run off of the spring on our property. That's right. And mm-hmm. our spring went dry in November. It's never been dry. Hmm. You know, and I mean the last the last many years we went from you know really thinking we were putting in a huge apple orchard, well, huge for huge for the apple game, <laughs> for for Thompson Creek for us. Yeah. <laughs> but a big heirloom yeah. apple orchard to Wow, first of all, these heirlooms don't like it here. It's too hot. And these heirlooms are from Great Britain, where it's, you know, maybe like Corvallis used to be. Right. And second of all, like, even though they're deep rooted plants that don't need a lot of water, they still need some water. And just not having what we used to have has really shifted the energy of what we can do out there, you know. Yep. Um, and so that's, that's been a huge pivot too. And, and 
you know, and watching the, the forest suffer so much. So now the pivot, like for me, the one that makes me feel good at home is looking to the south. Okay, you know, jack pines and sequoias, and those are the trees that are going to try to move north, but this climate is changing so much faster. So I'm planting native trees from, you know, south of us. Yep up on the property and, and hoping that, you know, between the ones that are here that can make it and the ones that <laughs> want to move north that they can make it, that, you know, we can keep some, just some trees on the property. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, the pivots come from all directions. It's not just the jobs and the technology. It's also just the life. Yeah. You know, well, think about how much our little valley here has, how many iterations it's gone oh through my gosh. In, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. in the, you know, the, cause you guys have been here, what, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've seen some changes and you guys are not that much. Mm-mm. You're, you're going to be up to 20 or. Yeah. We're 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yep. 21. Yep. Yep. It's pretty interesting and it's pretty interesting too, because of the, um, I'm not even sure how to put this, but the pivots just happen regardless, just like people pivot, you know, like the, I was just thinking about the old timers that were here whenever we Mm -hmm. first got here and the, on our road, you know, Mm -hmm. there were the, the, the Elmore family and the Gutchesses and all that. And they were, they were part of it. And I've learned so much from them. So I guess that's the thing is you learn the moment that you're in, you learn from that. And then when things pivot, then you don't forget about that, but then you just go on from there. Right. And that's the, and that's the key to keep things fresh. Cause I do have a lot of people that have been like, how could you change your career? You can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I go, well, I did, (laughs) you know, and you kind of just have to do that. You just, cause you just, you feel it in your gut that it's just like, it's not, Right. If I just stick with this, it's not going to be good for anything. So, yeah, it's super interesting. It's super interesting too that we're all still around. <laughs> Back to I got fifteen. You years. got fifteen. <laughs> that's all you're giving here. Well, see, that's the thing is, I'm like, if somebody asked me the other day. They were like, um, "How long do you think you're going to do this podcast thing? Like, you know, ten, fifteen episodes?" <laughs> and I was like, "What?" And I was like, "No, I'm thinking like ten, fifteen years. You know, like I'm the." They're like, oh, you're serious about this. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, there's a lot of people I want to oh, talk to. Yeah. You know, there's so many people. Uh, in this and room. I think, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I do think is great right now is the podcasting is, is wonderful. And I, and I was telling Christopher a couple of weeks ago, I, it, it's kind of interesting because, right, our grandparents grew up listening to just the radio and yeah. we had TV and we're like, you know, God, how could they just listen to the radio and be like so enthralled? And now like we never watch TV. We don't, we rarely watch a movie, but we're often, you know, running around with a podcast in our ear because it's yeah. like, it, it's so Well, it's great. connection, right? It's connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing that I love about our modern world of podcasts is I'll be driving down the road and one of my boys will be driving with me. And they'll go, whoa, whoa, hold on. And they just press pause. And then they'll go, what does he mean when he said this? And I was thinking, oh, that's so different than when I was a kid listening to Paul Harvey, you know? 
you know, <laughs> no it was like, you just have to listen. And if you miss what he says, you know, it's, got, it's gone. Yeah. And so now there, I kind of like that is that we have that, yeah. that extra level of ability to just pause, talk through stuff and then go, Oh, okay. And then the boys always do this to me. They go, you can press play again. Oh, they always tell me when to, th- it's a, you can press play again. It's you like, can do Oh, that. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we listen and then break that's, again. But I mean, awesome. it's, it's really cool because they learn a lot. I listen to a lot of like business podcasts and I'm blown away by the, it's limitless how we can structure these, these talks, you know, and, and like educate people. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Pretty darn cool. Super cool. I didn't even know you're doing this, but mm-hmm. just, to, to uh, emphasize who I think you are, Kirsten's like, oh yeah, he's doing podcasts. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> like it's not. Yeah, it's not a stretch. No need to even. Yeah, I'm sure we'll show up. Yeah, and that would be a cool <laughs> thing to do. Well, it's a good excuse to. That, honestly, there's a lot of people that I haven't talked to for a long time, <laughs> and I'm like, you want to do a podcast? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and that's how I can like connect, you know? Yeah. So oh, for sure. Um, because I went off. I went off like. I went MIA for like a good year and a half. Oh yeah. I mean, where I just didn't, I was offline completely. I just like the, I, we stopped doing the farm. I was just like, I'm not, I don't have anything to post on social media. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Like all of that. I was burned out on everything, you know? And honestly, I, I really think, I really think the whole pandemic really, really is what drove me to that, you know? And I don't blame the pandemic for it, but it was just, culturally that's where we were in a time it's a and big reset yeah and especially i and this is something that i'm investigating in in some of these earlier pod or, or any of these podcast episodes that i'm doing is if i'm talking to somebody that was farming actively during the 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 um the pandemic i ask them at some point so tell me about your experience during covid um mm-hmm. because as food producers we all had this um it was like a wartime effort, you know, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I don't think, I don't think that people realize that the the food producers of America and I'm not downplaying all of the people in hospitals and everything. Like, I, of course the, they are the heroes of our, of our country. But I think a lot of people forget how busy all the farmers of America were still during that time. And it, and a lot of people as a farmer, you don't have time to think about it you know, cause you had to just keep going. So now I'm finding some of these folks I'm talking with are, are like just now processing what, what is this three years later or whatever yeah. they're just now processing. And so it's really interesting and they're being really cool about it, but, it, and it's really good to see these like emotions come out, you know? So, um, I don't know why I started talking about that. I guess I was just talking about me taking a break or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that's really what did it because we were on the grind during that whole time when we were trying to figure out how to, how to keep the people of the Valley fed and everything. And then the number one, I always hate bringing this up because it kind of seems like a downer, but the number one trend that I hear among farmers is everybody got drawn into the, we need your food. And then as soon as everything went normal, everybody went away. And that's the only part that I think that is like the, the, point of bitterness that I hear a, a mm-hmm. commonality among farmers and I don't, there's no solution to that. It's just, right. it's just how it is, you know, and we can all, we can, we'll just have to deal with it. 
but it's super interesting to hear people's stories about that. Kind there of were stuff. a lot of massive human experiments that went on, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I remember I was remote in 1996 with HP and I haven't been in off allowed us to move here. Oh, right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I now have an office and I haven't had office. I work with people that weren't born when I left my office. Oh, interesting. And so, <laughs> you know, and they're like, hi, I really liked uh, COVID working at home. And I said, yeah, me too. But it, it wasn't different because I'd been doing it since the mid nineties. Um, but then it, I think so then because of that, it was always the thing, like there was always a big part of corporate culture that said, yeah, but you can't work remote if you're this or this or this. And then we all had to work remote and suddenly managers were like, oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah, we can get things done. But I think everything like that happened. And I think for the food side, you know, suddenly we were local because you couldn't get things. And so, yeah, they had to come to you and suddenly it's like, what's in our food shed that we can eat? Yep. Because everybody's bought all the beans out of the store and they <laughs> remember they just ransacked everything. Yeah. Nothing's coming in. And then, and so that was a social experiment. Like we now know that in a crisis, people realize they need to eat local. But to your point, when the crisis was over, we went back to, oh, we could get that shipped in for someplace else. It's a lot cheaper. We'll go back to, to that. Yep. And I think for years we're going to be thinking about what did we learn from that, you know, because it was a unique experiment that nobody knew we were going to do. I don't know. I think. Well, and I think that, I think you're exactly right. And, and that's the thing is, uh, uh, I think there are always silver linings. There's certain, there's certain things like, uh, one of my previous, uh, episodes I was talking with Beth at even pole. Um, she's up in, um, uh, McMinnville and she kind of had the same sentiment about like, Oh, it was, it was, you know, feast and then famine or, or whatever with her customer base during that time. She goes, but I learned a lot of things. And so like they learned mm-hmm. out of that, that they need to have a way for customers to get their food seven days a week. So they created a cooler system and they had yeah. a local, uh, um, business that allowed them to put coolers in. And so they keep these coolers stocked. So like that's the silver lining is that mm-hmm. they they said what can we learn from this? Oh, we learned that we have certain customers that need our food always. So they did that and now it's been really successful for them. So there's things like that I think mm-hmm. that we'll we'll keep learning as the years go on, you yeah. know, instead of just sticking our head in the sand and saying, "Boy, that sucked." You know, it's like Yeah. We just have to keep asking those kind of questions. I think that's right. the important thing. Do you guys have anything you want to finish up with? Anything, any last parting words? Christopher, you have to have some sort of wild wisdom, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kristen's the smart one of the two. It's funny, though. It's, it's funny. It's funny because, um, you know, we kind of started doing our own thing. And it used to be we were both up on stage. Yeah. And then Kirsten's been traveling around the world doing it, and I haven't. And we just did the fermentation festival here in Ashland a mm-hmm. couple of months ago. And it was the first time we were on stage in a while years and just like she's an intuitive cook and uh i have to follow i still get out our books Mm -hmm. and if i'm making something and follow the recipe rewrote (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) because i have to follow the recipe which is great because we people come up and they're either one way or another and it's like well you talk to me or talk to her because somewhere 
we're you're between the two of us on this kind of thing. Right. You know, but on stage or when we're talking, it's the same kind of thing. So I'll just talk about, I'll say stuff that may be not quite right, but it's close. <laughs> and Kirsten will not say things that are not quite right, but they're not as funny. <laughs> so there's a happy balance in between. And I think it's just like today, you know, it, I thank you because it's enjoyable getting a chance to talk with her <laughs> like this, you know, about this, but it forces this kind of dynamic, right? Right. Having a third party in the house we don't have right. besides a dog. Right. And she doesn't really do a good job of this because she likes me better than her. Right. But here it's like really nice to like watch, like, is she, she going to let me say this or is she going to say, just feel her going. It's not quite right, but I'm going to let him go on So this. basically you're saying you guys are the Laurel and the Hardy of <laughs> fermentation. Like maybe that should be the title of the podcast. <laughs> you know, when we used to be on stage at Mother Earth News a lot, like people, couples mm-hmm. would, would love that aspect of, especially, you know, like I didn't say anything today, like, but sometimes on stage, you know, when he would really just get something <laughs> too wrong for me to just like gloss over it gloss yeah. over it remember she's got a chef knife most of the time right that's true <laughs> there's danger here. that's true <laughs> so yeah they would they would like when i had to you know correct <laughs> yeah. oh i know it, this is a perfect way to end it one question I have to ask. Do you guys have any idea how many cabbages you've chopped total? <laughs> Christopher's probably chopped more than me when For we sure. were in business, but I'm, I'm going to catch up slowly. Do you think 100,000? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think We've I, never had an automatic chopping. Everything was We never had a Roboku. I uh, dreamed of a Roboku. I mean, I literally would dream that's, that's of a Roboku. Back to that. <laughs> Which was really confusing because in the dream, there would be the cheerleaders. And the Roboku. <laughs> it's like, I was going to say like a big Lebowski kind of scene. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it's not bowling. It's a Roboku. <laughs> Roboku. I was just feeding them, just dropping them in and yep. out was coming out there. And it's like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, I can't look at a cabbage. I, we have a different relationship. Yeah. You know, when you, when you, now when I go in the store and I see all the cabbages, you're kind of thinking like, okay, that's a, that's a five gallon crock or a 10 gallon crock or, you know. You just see them as, oh, yeah, I'm going to call those up, right? Make something so, how big a crock do I need? For that? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that that's how what he th- thought all, when he saw cabbages. No, yeah, well, I thought sharing we should give Jagger something that's unique. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs>